Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Today, we talked to Stacey Barazer, who owns her own environmental consulting practice, and her company provides a diversity of services in water affordability and equity and stormwater and watershed management, among other things. Our conversation focused primarily on her work around water affordability and equity issues. I very much appreciated Stacey's perspective on this because there is a misconception that because water is a human right, everyone has access to it. From the conversation, we will see that this issue around water affordability is a little bit more complex than that. And we also talk about some solutions. I'm really excited to finally have you on an interview because I thought about this idea about a year and a half back. And when I reached out to you to get your thoughts about it, you were sort of like emphatically in support of the idea and saw that there was a need for it. So I really appreciate you kind of being that support for me in a time when I wasn't sure if this was really a good idea. But the other reason why I felt like you were a good person to kind of feature on this podcast is because your work around water affordability is absolutely critical. And I know that we're talking more about it and trying to figure out solutions. And you work in the thick of these things. So I think it's important for people to be aware of the issue. And so I thought we could just get started with having people kind of learn a little bit about you and if you can tell us how you became interested in water. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to join you on the podcast today. My name is Stacey Isaac Barraza. I run a small environmental consulting firm called IB Environmental. We only got really started as a firm in September of 2018, but it's been, been a fun journey so far. I got into the field of water, I guess it probably was in my undergraduate degree where I had an internship during the semester and ended up doing water quality stuff. I did different things at first, but the water was where I ended up. Um, everything from GIS in terms of sort of indexing different streams or water bodies within the U.S., different stream segments in terms of their water quality um, were they meeting different requirements that EPA had sort of designated to them or were they not? And so that's probably where I really got more most officially started in terms of, of water. Okay. And you also have an interesting background. You're from Trinidad and most people probably don't know much about Trinidad in terms of its water issues. Do you mind kind of giving us a bit of an overview of the water situation there? Absolutely. So yes, I did grow up in Trinidad and Tobago, which is a twin island republic in the Caribbean. So two small islands in the tropics, so a good bit of rainfall. But in terms of the island environment, the water sort of rushes off the land pretty quickly. Sort of storing that water, capturing it and storing it for, for human use is, is important and a challenge. Also, with the high volumes of rainfall that we have at times in an island environment like Trinidad, coupled with development and sort of development and construction on 
particularly the northern mountain range, the, the northern range in Trinidad, has caused issues of flooding on the last couple of decades. So we've seen flooding heightened. Different practices have sort of contributed to that. So of course, the, the amount of rain has stayed fairly stable over the, over time, but certain practices like land use patterns, et cetera, um, have caused, and, and of course, a lot of development and not having as much of the land area in natural vegetation anymore. So yeah, several of those factors coupled with flooding is a big issue, especially in Trinidad. Mm-hmm. Are the conversations around climate change common in Trinidad and Tobago like it is for other island nations? Yes, it is. the conversation is happening. Sometimes it is difficult to go beyond the conversation to actually implementing practices that would combat things like climate change. So, of course, there is concern. It's an island, and so sea level rise is, is quite well demonstrated on certain parts of the coast in Trinidad, unfortunately. So there are some groups, I'm thinking of university-based uh, work, for instance, that is focusing on combating climate change. But I think one of the major challenges is actually getting implementation done at the national government level, but then also at the same time, you know, we're not seeing as many citizens make use of things like solar panels, for instance, on their homes. So there's a lot of room for growth, even though there's some talk about addressing climate change. I think there's a lot more action that can be be done. Yeah. Well, I asked the question about the climate change because when you were mentioning how the frequency and the intensity of the floods have increased over the past two decades, there's this sort of the global trend that we're seeing these type of events becoming more common and unpredictable in the damage that they can do because of climate change. So I was just curious about what Trinidad and Tobago was doing in order to make them more resilient in a sense. So thank you for sharing that with us. So I, I think it's it's really cool that you're from Trinidad and Tobago and that you're in the water sector because I don't know very many people who are from that part of the world who are in the water industry. So could you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of experiences in the water industry that have kind of like piqued your interest or that you thought were, were interesting as you were kind of growing in this particular industry professionally? Yes, I've been in the U.S. since my uh, undergraduate degree, and I studied environmental science in college. And then in graduate work, I did a master's degree in public administration. So have kind of been in the space of a lot of nonprofit and definitely uh, local governments and even federal government work on environmental issues, especially water. And so it's, it's been an interesting road from doing, you know, GIS work, like I mentioned before, with streams and what we called indexing different different streams according to their water quality characteristics. I really have fallen into the area of, well, part of my philosophy is that there are a lot of good environmental project ideas out there. One of the challenges or the reason, I think the major reason that many of them never get implemented and see the life of day is that we don't know how to fund them. We don't know how to finance these. We do not know how to generate public interest or even decision-maker interest in applying the funding to address um, these problems and actually implement these projects. So that's where we spend a lot of our, our time at IB Environmental is, is that area of convincing folks that 
something should be done and here are examples of how you can pay for it. Mm -hmm. And so what have been sort of like your perceptions about the funding of environmental projects in the U.S. as somebody who grew up outside of the U.S. for the most part? Hmm, That's a good question. I would say, for example, the water and wastewater rates in a country like Trinidad, if we use that as an example, is highly subsidized in that country. The customers, the citizens, don't really pay the full cost of what it's costing the government to provide the water and sewer service. And so that is actually, in some ways, true to a large extent in the U.S. as well. So water has historically been underpriced in the U.S. You can compare it to other utilities like electricity, for instance. Uh, And a lot of utility managers, water utility managers, will make the point that water costs are so low, we shouldn't really be concerned about water affordability. However, you know, the, the lowest income folks in this country, in the U.S., they are not only paying for water, but they are, of course, paying for other other necessities. They're paying for housing, they're paying for medicine, etc. And so the fact that water bills are going up, and we've seen that over the last several years, and they need to go up. The water and sewer infrastructure in this country has been neglected, largely speaking, for a long time. And so the rates of water, sewer, storm water do need to go up in order to make up for this infrastructure gap that we have. And so as the rates go up, though, there's going to be a sector of the population that's not able to afford these new higher rates. And that is where the firm IB Environmental spends a lot of our time. So that's, those are our biggest projects, working with an individual water utility to first analyze their residential population, their customers, to see if there are affordability issues in terms of data, numbers, what's the income of this area that this water utility is serving. And if there seem to be hardships based on the wealth or income levels of the citizens being served, then how can the water utility design programs? Um, within its rate structure, there's, there's a little bit you can do within the actual water to or stormwater rate structure to help address issues of, of affordability. But then in some of the more extreme cases, you really need to develop a program that assists low-income customers outside of the actual water rate structure. And so that's where I think there's a lot of potential. It's where we spend a lot of our time because that often opens the door. So having an assistance program for your lowest-income folks usually opens the door with your decision makers for the necessary rate increases or new stormwater utility fees, for instance. Yeah. Um, to address what issues. Okay, that's great. I'm glad you started kind of segueing into the equity and affordability aspect of the discussion because the issue is of equity and affordability is increasingly getting more attention, especially in the water industry. And a recent report that I read from Dig Deep and U.S. Water Alliance found that 2 million Americans don't have access to clean drinking water and wastewater infrastructure. And this is particularly true with mostly in the indigenous communities in the U.S. And then I've also been doing a little bit of research on the issue. And there's a report that showed, um, I think it was from Michigan State University, where they were saying that nearly 14 million households nationwide struggle with paying their water bills. So give us a little bit of insight into 
how are utilities thinking about equity and affordability? What are their priorities when it, when it comes to this creating equal accessibility to water services? Yeah, that's a, that's a very big question. So you mentioned certain groups, you know, subpopulations that seem to be more affected by higher prices or uh, poorer water service in general. And there is, there's a big overlap in the U.S., of course, between the lowest income populations and the populations of color. So this concept of the color of water is pretty interesting. And there's been some research done that shows, uh, especially Latino populations, apparently, are where the prices tend to be highest and the water service is not up to par within the U.S. Mm -hmm. So that aspect of equity is really important, the lens of trying to make things equal and sort of making up for past discrepancies in terms of how people of, of color have been treated in the U.S. The utilities are pretty open, generally speaking. I think there has been a lot of movement in the direction of being more open. And so that's good news. But it's a decision that needs to be taken, I think, from a, a point of information and data. So it's not okay, I think, in this field when so much money and infrastructure is on the line to just say, well, you know, to kind of take the bleeding heart approach, like, you know, we should do something to help low-income folks just because. I'm a big fan of applying some data to that. You know, there's a lot of data available through the census, for instance, that can be applied to analyze the situation, analyze if it's pockets of poverty. I know some utilities who actually have even gone so far as to address joblessness. So if you have a customer who's not paying their water utility bill, there's actually, there was this program to the city of Atlanta, for instance, called Streamworks, where with some investigation, they were able to hire some people who were not paying their bills because they didn't have a job. Wow. At the same time, the city or the water department was looking for you know, entry-level positions and operators and that kind of thing. And so I think if we could leverage that and do more of that in the industry, it could, it could really have, you know, to give the water pun, but ripple effects throughout society. So there's a lot of potential there. And I'm happy to see that the leaders in the water industry, the water utility managers in particular, seem to be more open to addressing affordability and sort of acknowledging that this is a problem, especially going into the future. So I tell utilities, if you do the analysis and you look at the data and you don't see an affordability problem right now, then you don't have a problem. Probably you should add the word yet. Eventually, with the way that we need to be generating more revenue for this industry into the future, that it's at given utilities will have affordability issues in the future as they continue to raise their rates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's also this aspect that I'd like to get a little bit of your insight on is large utilities dealing with this issue of equity and affordability versus smaller utilities. So majority of the utilities in the U.S. are small to midsize. I believe it's 80% if I'm not wrong. And the rest are large utilities. But the large utilities serve a majority of the U.S. population. So from your perspective and the work that you've done at IB Environmental, what is the general approach for how you advise large utilities on affordability issues versus smaller utilities? Yeah, that's a good question. And so it's important to recognize first, too, that both types of utilities have affordability challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So within the large utilities, you have, especially on the Eastern Coast, 
really complicated issues that have to do with combined sewer systems. So, you know, the sort of stormwater and the sewer systems are combined in some areas. And so that, that's going to be hard and expensive to separate. And that raises affordability issues for those communities, the more urban areas. And as we know it, like other countries, highly urbanized areas tend to have pockets of poverty. So there is this poverty in urban areas that would lead to affordability concerns, especially when you have these expensive infrastructure projects that are going on. With smaller utilities, we see slightly, I would say, generally a different problem. And you're right, the majority of systems in the U.S. are small and, you know, what EPA would call even very small systems. And they struggle with affordability as well. We have this concept in the country or this phenomena of dying communities where there is population loss from some of these more rural or smaller communities, and that makes it really hard to pay payback loans, et cetera, at the water utility level when you don't have as many customers or the customers don't have as much income. So it's, it's really pretty entrenched. I would say one major observation, um, generally speaking, I would say a difference between larger utilities and smaller ones is that at the smaller utility level, we're looking at more capacity development. Is the capacity there to continue running the system? and keeping up with the infrastructure versus with the larger utilities or the more urban areas, uh, it has to do more with the different pockets or segments of the population that cannot afford. And when you look at the income curve, right, in larger urban areas, they might you have a higher chance of having a sector of the population that is higher income and can bear these increasing water and sewer rates. And in some cases, we can use some of that money, some of their rate money, their rate revenue from the higher income group to sort of quote-unquote subsidize or assist the lower income populations. You have usually sort of a bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on the, on the area. Smaller utilities tend not to have that sort of more normal population distribution and so it can be, can be pretty challenging. And so what's the solution for the smaller utilities? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, when uh, smaller utilities tend to serve, you know, more rural communities where the income is not as high compared to urban dwellers or urban customers. So like you were saying that, you know, at least you have a source of funding from the wealthy customers in the larger cities. But in smaller utilities, you're already struggling with a small customer base. And then you're also struggling with a customer base that doesn't have I guess, the wealth mobility or expendable income to pay towards their water bills. So what in your experience have you kind of seen that has worked for the small utilities when it comes to creating affordability for their customers, if any? Yeah, sure. Well, it is. there's no silver bullet, definitely. However, you know, smaller utilities do have one advantage. Again, as a small community, people know each other, they're familiar, and so maybe you do not have a formal affordability assistance program in a small community or a rural community, but folks know that so-and-so lost his job or, you know, so-and-so's husband passed away. Mm. And sometimes the community comes to aid in informal ways, I think, more than you would see in larger urban settings where there's not that sort of community spirit. 
So that that's one aspect that I think small communities have in their favor when it comes to affordability. But unfortunately, the fact is some of them just don't have the financial and managerial capacity to go on existing as an independent water system. And so there are cases where, you know, they should consider probably joining with a nearby system. So it could be another small rural system or maybe connecting and somehow having an agreement with a large urban system that's close, that's not too far away, for instance. And it, these these partnerships or this cooperation between, let's, let's just look at small utilities cooperating with each other, small rural ones, they could be a formal joining of the two utilities so that they increase their capacity and their staff, et cetera, by just combining. Or it could be less structured ways, like one example that we hear pretty often is maybe community A can only really pay a water operator two or three days a week. But community B, you know, 20 miles down the road or whatever, can also really only afford to pay a good qualified water operator for two days a week. Between the two of them, they can really keep a water operator gainfully employed if they were to kind of share that operator. So that's one sort of practical example with stories too of utilities buying this small and but they can buy chemicals like chlorine, for instance, together and still get better prices because they're buying larger bulk. So there, there are ways that they can sort of coordinate and cooperate. Um, but I think the sad truth is that some of them are just not going to survive long term and as an independent water utility. And so they need to look at you know, options for regionalizing or joining with other systems, combining. Yeah, that's really insightful. Thanks for sharing that because a lot of people, like most of us live in cities and so we don't often think about the struggles of or just how things are different rather in rural parts of this country from, you know, every aspect from the economic to the water side of things. And that was really insightful. So thank you for sharing that. So just going back to some of the work that you do with utilities, You said that you used data as a way to inform how you advise utilities on their water rates. In addition to identifying, I mean, using data from the Census Bureau, are there any other data points that you use that help you in kind of better informing your clients? Sure. Well, it's always important to talk with the utility itself. Mm -hmm. You know, most of the utility staff live and work within the service area. But also another really good type of group to tap into are these sort of third third party entities, like human service organizations within the, like, for example, sometimes the county would have its own human service department. A city may have that as well. Then there are nonprofit groups like the Salvation Army, for instance, who are usually involved with giving assistance to folks with their utility bills. And so they have a good lay of the land. They know what's happening. They can see how certain things that may have happened in that city or county affected the number of people or the types of people who've been coming in asking for help. So that's another really important partner to talk with Mm -hmm. when you're trying to design affordability assistance programs for any community. They know the unique characteristics of the community in question. Yeah, that's a really good approach because they work, like you said, with the communities on the ground. And so they have more intimate knowledge on kind of the state of the communities they're serving in a sense. So 
with your consulting practice, it's I'm sure it's been a journey for you, as you mentioned earlier. Could you tell us about what was your experience like starting the consulting or rather what kind of moved you to start your own consulting? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far, a big, big learning curve, but and I, I continue to learn stuff, which is, which is good and exciting. What encouraged me to start um, my own firm? I don't know. It was probably a series of, of events and, and things kind of coming together. I never really fancied myself as an entrepreneur. But, you know, if you are a self-starter, if you are your own worst critic and you're pretty disciplined and, you know, you can kind of leave yourself, I think. And so I enjoy the flexibility. I've always enjoyed flexibility in the jobs that I have because I don't feel like I need someone kind of breathing down my neck to get things done. I tend to set my own deadlines, etc. So yeah, this is this has been great. I've enjoyed the flexibility in terms of time and, and, and where I work from. And so that's something that's built into the culture of this firm. Uh, you know, we work hard and we get stuff done and we look for meaningful work to do, but we also are flexible in where and when we work. And then it's been also nice to be in a position where there's so much happening in terms of politics and you know, ideas on climate change and climate deniers, for instance. It's nice to be in a position where I can take a stand on those things um, if I want to. Uh, I can respond to, you know, political comments, etc. Um, and we've gotten pretty involved with climate change as well, because um, that is one of the biggest threats, I think, facing the world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, been, it's been fun to have that flexibility. I will say earlier in my life, in my career, I was a little bit more idealistic in some ways. And I always said, you know, money is secondary. I'm more interested in making a difference and, you know, saving the world, et cetera. Um, but you can do a lot more. You can have more impact if you have more money as well. So financial reasons too, this is a little bit more flexible, right? If you're part of a state or the federal government, et cetera, any kind of big entity like a university, even there are restrictions, there are pay bans, for instance, you know, there's protocols to follow and it's, it's nice to have the flexibility there too, to not have so many policies and restrictions. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with you on every single point there. I bet you do. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, I, I also started off being pretty idealistic. And I think there's also just like a part of activism in my personality that I wasn't necessarily able to express, especially as like a first gen immigrant. And I needed to, I was constantly in, not constantly, but I often think about, you know, keeping my my legal status in the country. And for some reason, I was just afraid that if I ever went to a protest or something of that sort and got arrested, then, you know, that wouldn't be too good for me in my kind of professional development. But that said, just being a consultant, I feel like I have more space to express myself and also be more of an advocate for issues that I'm passionate about and in particular for groups of people that I want to try and help kind of amplify their their voices. So in terms of your consulting, it sounds like it's been fulfilling in terms of the flexibility that you've been allowed and the space to grow. In terms of the specific work that you do, is there any fulfillment in how you get to work with the utilities in terms of how you advise them? 
Is has there been any change in that from being, you know, employed by a certain entity to being an independent consultant? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I do work a lot with utilities and there's this concept that, well, I think it's an economic principle that nothing good is free. So nothing good in life is free, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I'm all for grants. There are certain places where grants are very relevant, but it's been interesting as a consultant and, you know, sort of being compensated on an hourly basis. The utilities I've worked with have been so much more responsive as opposed to in my past, you know, past parts of my career, I was probably offering utilities assistance, technical assistance through a federal grant. And so they weren't directly paying for it. And sometimes it was difficult to get the data that you needed in order to crunch the numbers and do the analysis for them. Mm. So that's one delightful change. So, and it, it does make me think of that concept, right? If you're not paying for something directly, it's hard to appreciate it or value it. So that's been nice. Super, they've been super responsive in this new capacity. But yeah, I think that's one of the, the major differences in terms of working with utilities specifically. But I also have enjoyed the ability to work with nonprofit groups as well. So, you know, we've done some training on water finance for a river organization so that their members could understand how local government finance works and where they may be able to intervene into the process locally and how they may be able to make suggestions on new funding sources that were available, et cetera. So that's been that's been pretty fulfilling. I mean, I really enjoy working with a diversity of clients. So we have, you know, everything from we partner with big private engineering firms to small nonprofits to local government. So it's as well as, you know, at the state level. So it's been it's been fun to have that that mixture. That's awesome. That makes me very happy to hear that actually. I think that's one thing I'm I'm really grateful about having an opportunity to work in the US is having that freedom, I guess, to explore the possibility of being a consultant. I do have friends who are consultants in in other countries, and I think for them, it's a little bit more of a struggle, I feel. So being a consultant in the water industry, that's been a great opportunity so far. There's also the element of, you know, being a woman of color, and I don't know if it is an element for you, but for me, at least, I find there aren't very many of us. And so when I did meet you for the first time at the American Water Works Association's um, annual meeting in Philadelphia four years ago, I was really excited to see another woman of color presenting because I, I don't see that very often. So that was kind of inspiring for me. As you go through your journey and the kind of experiences that you've gathered over the years, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who comes from a similar background or experience on how they can navigate the water industry? What do they need to know? That's, yeah, it's, I like to say that sometimes it's good to not notice that you're a woman or of color and just pretend that it's not there and just go into a room, whether you're speaking or participating in a meeting, and act as though you're not different from anybody else in the room. So the room may be mainly Caucasian, it may be mainly male, it may be mainly people who are older than you, but I think there's an advantage sometimes to pushing all of that to the back of your mind and just pretend that it's a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And 
that's not been very hard for me because of where I grew up. I think, you know, I never saw myself as less than, but I understand for folks who may have grown up like within the U.S. in a different setting where there are these color differentiations from very early on in terms of a child's development. It could, it could, it could lead to a very different experience. But that was one sort of advantage for me was that, you know, I didn't grow up with some of those, that backdrop, if you will. And I know there's a lot of work being done and a lot of press, if you will, on implicit bias, et cetera. And so I will leave that to the powers that be out there that I think are doing a good job on, on highlighting some of those things. But, you know, I'll give an example of in my, my personal experience where I was really wrong about judging someone or judging a group of people, right, incorrectly. So I am on the board of this nonprofit group in Georgia, and we are pretty close. We're a very hardworking board. Um, We greet each other warmly whenever we have meetings and events, et cetera. And in the back of my mind, I did sort of notice that when I see some of these gentlemen in other meetings and outside in different settings, they don't seem as warm and as outgoing. You know, I approach them first and then they say, Oh, yeah, hello. So they don't pretend that they don't know me, but they do not make that initial approach. I put that to the back of my mind. I was barely even aware that I had made that observation until I was at a retreat and we had a facilitator to talk about equity, diversity, inclusion, et cetera. And she gave us a small exercise. And I talked to two Caucasian men who are a little bit older than me from the U.S. South. And they told me something really interesting. So I have an 11-year-old son who's going through some of these etiquette trainings right now. And they said when they were 11 years old, they went through training that said, you know, one of the things that taught them was that you should never extend your hand to a lady. You should wait for the lady to extend her hand to you first. So that may be old-fashioned or, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's the way they were raised. And so I could have been going around for years with a chip on my shoulder and, you know, be sort of angry and bitter that, you know, why do they act like they don't know me when they see me outside of this nonprofit group setting? They are pretty willing to work with me and talk with me when I'm chairing this board, but outside they pretend like they don't know me. And I would have been totally wrong about that. It's their training and they were actually being respectful in their way. The training that they had gotten from little boys to wait for a lady to extend her hand. And it was not, they were not coming from a place of disrespect, but from a place of respect. So that's one of the tangible examples that I would say to kind of like shrug things off where possible, pretend there's no difference, walk in the room like you own it. And I think there's a lot of value to that approach as well. Now, if there's situations where things get extreme, you're treated um, badly because you're a woman, because you're a color, a person of color, because you're younger, and then you do need to speak up for yourself and confront issues in some cases, but sometimes if you can put it to the back of your mind and pretend it's not there, I think it can benefit you in some cases. And in some cases, you're just wrong about some of the, the perceptions that you might be noticing. Yeah, I think you make a good point here that we all do have biases. And I think the way that we would have a better or to build a better understanding within our community is just to have those conversations like you did with your colleagues on the at that workshop. And I think it's kind of the first step is don't make assumptions of people that you don't really know and just treat them as a, I guess, a human being and 
get to know them as as they are and try to kind of be aware of any kind of biases that you may have based on whatever their their physical appearance may be. And I think that starts the conversation and allows us to kind of understand each other better and go on this path of mutual respect. So thanks for sharing that story. Sure. And I want to highlight there that I've known these gentlemen for a number of years and they were very similar to a lot of other men that I've worked with over the years. This conversation would never have happened if we had not invited a facilitator to come and talk about what we call Jedi issues, right? Justice, um, equity, and diversity and inclusion. That's really what prompted it. So I can't say enough. Any type of organization out there, whether you're government, nonprofit, it's, it's really a good idea to bring in a facilitator, sort of an independent entity to, yeah. to engage and facilitate some of these kinds of conversations. Because again, that would not have come up if we did not purposely make the decision to hire someone to bring her in to do this. Yeah, you definitely need some expert to kind of lead these conversations because they can also easily go south if they're not tactfully managed, I feel. So you kind of touched on this earlier on or throughout the conversation is there are some things or, or skills rather that helped you be successful. Could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the things that I commonly tell young people who want to be in this field, and I joke around that my unwritten job description is um, having informational interviews with young people mm. who um, invite me to coffee randomly from LinkedIn or whatever. It's great. But I, I enjoy talking with them. And definitely we need more people in the field of environmental protection, conservation, environmental justice, water issues, climate change. So I do not want anybody who started off thinking they were going to have a career in this field to sell out, if you will, and change their mind and go work you know, outside of the field. So I try to encourage them. And if you're listening today and you're ready to sell out, don't sell out, stay in the field. It's, it's worth it. It's rewarding. And things will fall into place if you keep persisting. Well, one of the things I tell them, I think, this is just a cross-cutter in your personal relationships, your professional relationships, regardless of the country or the cultural setting, and that is to be dependable and to keep your word. So you have to be a reliable person. You have to say, you know, I will get this to you by the end of next week and get it to them by the middle of next week. You have to say, at the end of this week, you know, something's come up, I'm sorry. I think I'm going to need an extra week on this. If you are not that reliable, dependable person, even on small things, then you can't be trusted with the larger projects and programs. So that's Mm -hmm. one, I think, not just career advice, but life skill to follow through on your word so that folks know that they can depend on you when you say you're going to do something. And that means at times you're going to have to say that you can't do it or it's going to take you longer to do it than the person asking you to do it would like. But that's the reality. And in the end, it serves you better to just be open and honest about that and, and stick to your word. Yeah, that's great. I think the the whole dependability element is something that requires a lot of discipline and honesty. And uh, it's a skill that I think it should be like a top skill that we need to start like honing in at a very early age is keeping your promises. Yeah. And I think I will add another thing to terms of young professionals. It's difficult as a young professional to say that you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. 
the American Waterworks Association you mentioned before, Fatma, they have a, a publication, um, a journal that comes out, and the editor, Ken Musa, a short article at the beginning of one of the recent publications of that journal, you know, saying, you know, that it's okay to say I don't know. And that is not something that was personally easy for me at the beginning of my career. You feel like people are sort of judging you and looking down on you for your age and your therefore, you know, lack of experience. I mean, you may have experience in one area, but you can't have that much experience in a lot of areas just because you're younger, you know, just, you know, the numbers wouldn't add up. So it's easy as a young person to be defensive and sort of pretend that you know the answer. And so one of the things that I've become more comfortable with over my career and as, as I've gotten more gray hairs is to say, you know, I'm not too sure about that. And I will try to get back to you. And there comes the dependability and reliability piece. If you do say, I am not sure, I will go and check that out. You have to really get back to the person, right? Because then your, your dependability starts to come into question. But it's okay to say that you don't know. Um, and I think that's hard. Just by, by definition, it's harder for younger people. Yeah. There's also the pressure of as you kind of progress in your career, you build a brand around yourself of being the expert. And it's hard to say, I don't know, but it's, you're so right. It's, it's really important that we're able to say that because that's a, an expression of humility, but also an expression of wanting to give a right answer, like an honest answer. And I think that that may be hard for for some of us, regardless of like where we are in our in our journey, because we want to be seen as the experts. And if we don't know the answer, then we're scared that, oh, we're going to be exposed as, you know, a fraud or something of that sort. But uh, that's good advice, though, is and, you know, it's it's a learned skill. Right. And I was going to add that humility is really tricky. I heard this quote from this quote from Ted Turner. So I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and so that's a big name here. Mm-hmm. But Ted Turner supposedly said that if I only had a little bit of humility, I'd be perfect. And so that's that's the irony with humility, right? right. In some ways, you get you get more humble as you get older and more experienced, and it's harder to you know admit that you don't know something when you're younger. So yeah, that's what I like. If I only had a little humility, I'd be perfect. It's always a balancing act. That's the story of our lives. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I know take credit for that quote. That quote was from Ted Turner. Yeah. We'll definitely include that in our notes. It's a good quote. All right. So we're reaching the end of our conversation here. And this is a section that is our, our lightning round. So I have just uh, four questions here for you. And we'll, we'll start with the first one, which is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Okay, so very recently in the last week or two, uh, I mentioned one already from Ken Musa, the, um, from AWWA, the American Waterworks Association, and his advice to young professionals to, to be humble and to say you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then I've also read recently this book called Brimstone. Mm-hmm. And it has, it's from a Christian perspective, but it, it talks about how we all judge. So going back to this idea that we talked about earlier in the podcast, Safna, about about cultural backgrounds and and judging other people and and that kind of thing and you know not always equally respecting the people that we work with that's been an interesting thing for me to look at and see where I you know make judgments every day and of course judgments are necessary to 
to survive as a human being, right? You have to look at certain berries and think, I shouldn't eat that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you make a judgment that these berries look healthy and those don't. But um, when it comes to how we interact with other people and our values and how we see them and treat them, that's been, that's been an interesting thing that I have read recently. Yeah, I think you bring up such a good point because it's something that we're learning and we're not perfect at it. But I think, you know, myself as well, I'm still learning about the intricacies of our culture as as a whole and educating myself. But I'm not necessarily going to know everything, but I'm on this journey to to self-learn in a sense. And Part of that is also mm-hmm. trying to shed off my, or just even recognize my own biases and work on shedding them off or kind of managing them. I don't know what the, the right word here is, but I think for me, I'm, I'm learning to also just be more open to, to receiving feedback and knowing that no one is perfect, but that we want to learn and understand each other better. So I'll definitely check out that book. All right, the next question here is, what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Yeah, that's a tough one. It's tougher than it probably should be, but I'm a big believer in lists, mm-hmm. you know, to-do lists, have a list of things to do and things to do in my personal life and things to do professionally. And I try to get them on the calendar as well so that they get done. And I have a lot of fulfillment when I scratch those things off the list because it's been done. So that's something that has helped me to keep up with all my different interests, my personal, my family life, and my professional life, but just all the other volunteer things, et cetera, that I, that I get into, whether it's with the Cub Scouts or whatever group that I'm, that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I'm a big fan of listing and then prioritizing the tasks so that you are dependable and reliable and you don't let too many things fall through the cracks. Yeah, yeah. What's the best piece of advice you received? Hmm. Probably to, to kind of be true to yourself. So I think, you know, there are a lot of folks who reach a certain point in life um, where they feel sort of unfulfilled, like they're not making a difference in the world, etc. And we do have to sacrifice, develop skills that are probably not natural to us, but are necessary anyway. But at some point, I think it's really important to honor your inherent interests and your inherent abilities. So I'm definitely not there yet. I'm not perfect to that, but, you know, I'll just use a quick example. If you really want to learn French because you think it sounds great, and so you can beat your, your head against the wall trying to learn French, but maybe you're more natural at Spanish, and maybe Spanish is more practical because you run into more Spanish-speaking people who don't speak English, right? So at some point in our lives, I think we have to sort of acknowledge our inherent talents and strengths. And while we work on weaknesses, sort of leverage, I think the world misses out when we have inherent talents that we do not sort of give the light of day and and play into those talents, interests and passions. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's great. The final question I have for you here is who is your personal hero? Oh, and I have a disappointing answer. (laughs) I don't have one. (laughs) I don't think I have a personal hero. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like, yeah, when my son says, who's your favorite musician who's your favorite you know <laughs> singer and who, what's your favorite movie i don't really have a top list like that but i would say i admire different things and different people right so yeah i don't have one single personal hero i'm afraid to mention that's, that's a fantastic answer actually so i never thought of it that way but you're right everyone has 
something unique to offer. So that's a great answer. All right. So this brings us to the end of our lovely conversation. Thank you for your candidness, for sharing your insights on water affordability and equity issues. I'm so glad that there are people like you who are really working at the forefront of this because we really do need to have it addressed. So for those who want to follow you on your journey, how can they do that? Okay, well, ibenvironmental.com is our website. And so environmental is a long word, and sometimes I myself spell it incorrectly, but ibenvironmental.com is one way to get a good overview of the of the company. And then on Twitter, my handle is stacyib underscore enviro. So that's stacyib underscore E-N-V-I-R-O. So that's one way to keep up with, with what we're doing. And then we do also have a newsletter of events, especially that are coming out. So if you want to send me an email and ask me to that, I'm happy to do that as well. That's mainly the, the best way to, to keep up with what we're, what we're doing. Okay. And uh, what's your email? Yeah. And it's, it's simply Stacy with an E. So S-T-A-C-E-Y at ibenvironmental.com. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for sharing your time. Is there anything else you would like to share with us before we leave? I know. I just want to say to you, Fatma, thanks for the opportunity. And this is a great thing that you're putting on here. And yeah, I can't wait to listen to some of the other podcasts in the series. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I think we're, we've got some solid people <laughs> on the list here and including yourself of course so thank you so much for making the time i i really do appreciate it and um excited to see your successes take care thanks. hey all thanks for listening to breaking green ceilings if you'd like to hear more episodes with change making environmentalists head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.